Hello, and welcome to Connect, Collaborate, Champion, the podcast of the New American Colleges and Universities. I'm your host, Sean Creighton. In my current role as NACU president, I have the honor of working with an amazing group of independent colleges and universities. I'm a huge admirer of their approach to teaching and learning. They provide an integrated, liberal, professional, and civic education. As a result, the NACU campuses graduate extraordinary professionals for a global workforce and society. Also, their campuses are beautiful. About our podcast, we will focus on topics related to higher education. We will bring in guests that wrestle with current and future challenges. They'll include college presidents, provosts, professors, researchers, authors, disruptors, reporters, strategists, and maybe even a futurist or two. They'll help us expand our window into the world of higher ed. Thank you for being here. And without further ado, let's get started. This is part one of my two-part conversation with Nathan Graw. In this episode, we'll be focusing on Dr. Graw's Watershed 2018 book, Demographics and the Demand for Higher Education. And then we'll get into his new book, The Agile College, which was written as a follow-up. Dr. Nathan Graw is the Ada M. Harrison Distinguished Teaching Professor of Social Sciences at Carleton College, where he has served on the faculty since 1999 and also as an Associate Dean from 2009 to 2012. His work as a labor economist studies the connections between family background and educational and labor market outcomes. Nathan's 2018 book, Demographics and the Demand for Higher Education, examines how recent demographic shifts are likely to affect the demand for higher ed. In a follow-up project, The Agile College, Nathan draws on interviews with higher education leaders to provide examples of how proactive institutions are grappling with demographic change. Nathan Graw, welcome to the NACU podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you know, I'd like to begin by having you tell us a little bit about Carleton College and your position at the college. Sure. So Carleton is a highly selective, small, about 2,000 student liberal arts college. We're located 45 minutes south of Minneapolis-St. Paul, the Twin Cities area in Minnesota. We're fiercely committed to the liberal arts and a residential learning model, though, of course, this year, like everybody else, we're adapting to the pandemic. And so uh, while many of our students are on campus, many of them are also taking classes online. So we're adapting like everybody else. I teach economics there. I've been at Carleton for a little over 20 years now. I spent three years in the associate dean's office getting a taste of the administrative career path, um, but then returned to the classroom in 2012 and enjoy our students greatly. Yeah, I've had known a bunch of people over the years that have gone to Carleton and, uh, and a couple who are there now and just speak so highly about the experience. But I really want to focus now on your 2018 book, let's start there for a moment, Demographics and the Demand for Higher Education. It was a wake-up call for higher education when it came out. And uh, you know, you solidified in writing and in the data that institutions cannot keep their heads in the sand if they want to thrive. And, they, and if they do, they will flounder. And uh, I felt like overnight, like your name was everywhere. <laughs> I don't know if you felt that way. But uh, people are still talking about it. And if you could, you know, summarize just quickly the demographic shift, you know, what created it, what the percentages were, and uh, what part of the country is being most affected. Maybe we can kind of start there. But. Sure. 
Yeah, so if we look at demographic change, obviously it's always taking place. And so colleges have been grappling for a long time now with the change in the composition of students as we see a larger share of the U.S. population that are Hispanic Americans, for instance. Uh, this diversification has been going on for a long time. That's going to continue, uh, but what is maybe novel is that in the fallout from the Great Recession in 2008, young families started having fewer kids. And if we just look forward 18 years, we can then see some troubling projections for mm-hmm. at least the higher ed sector that serves traditional age students. Uh, the number of babies dropped by about 10% in a relatively short span of time from 2008 to 2011. There was a brief uh, reprieve, and then we've been on a downward slide ever ever since. And so as we look forward then, especially in the Great Lakes and the Northeast, where the fertility rates have been especially low, we see colleges that anticipate smaller prospective student pools. And I wouldn't say that was the first one to really point this out. WICHE, the Western Interstate Commission for Higher Education, mm-hmm. uh, has been forecasting the number of high school graduates in the country for years now. And so as early as 2012, you could see in their report this sort of tail out there in the mid-2020s. And I think a lot of people paid less attention to those forecasts because they were sort of generic this is what's happening to the market for high school students. And it allowed you then to dodge in your mind if you wanted and say, well, but we only serve a a subset of higher ed. And so what I did was to use Department of Education data to create projections for different subsectors of higher education. And, you know, the bottom line is most in the United States will have to grapple with this contraction that happens in mid-2020s. It will land maybe more lightly out west where they're sort of seeing an upward trend in population than out east where even now they're experiencing a slight downward trend. But all of us are going to have to grapple with this. Yeah, it seemed like your book was a tipping point, though, in in the conversation. Did you realize the impact that that would have? No, not really. I mean, obviously, like I said, the witchy folks had already been suggesting that, hey, something was coming. I think it landed at a particularly opportune time. So, We'd had the Great Recession, and for most of us, that created its own chaos for a while. And the book came out right at about the time when institutions had navigated that change and come out the other side, and it was within the downturn in, in fertility as it hit the traditional-aged college market, was within sight at that point. Um, you could look forward less than a decade and see, okay, this is now a present issue for us to deal with. So I think it was well-timed, and mm-hmm. you know, of course I told my my publisher that, yes, of course, this is going to sell copies. You should take it. But the reality is I was blessed by some good timing as well. How did the success of the book impact your, I guess, your life? Well, so I certainly spent a lot more time talking with folks mm-hmm. like you and other higher education leaders about where does this all go. And that, that brings with it some stress. I mean, obviously, the reality for some institutions is more dire than others. So while some institutions look at this as a, an interesting challenge and how do we adapt and optimize for a changing future. Other institutions were in far weaker situation even entering demographic change. And out east, the demographic change, as I said, has already started. Uh, fertility rates were below the replacement rate in the Great Lakes and northeast sections of the country, even in 2007, when the country as a whole was sort of in a baby boomlet. And so we see the stress on institutions, and then you know, institutions in having conversations with their constituencies point to my work and say, look, we're not kidding. We we need to make some radical changes. And some of those changes are painful. And so there's there's a bit of stress from that. And I trust that we've got a lot of smart people looking at the situation. It's so context specific. So when people say, does this mean that my institution really has to consider merger or closure? That that doesn't have a single answer. That's far more context specific. 
and you have to trust that institutional leaders and, and faculty and staff that are contemplating those harder choices are are doing so with a lot of information on the table about what they know about their specific market and about the the opportunities that they do and don't have depending on what information and history has preceded that mm-hmm. choice. Maybe this is a good segue to your new book. just came out in 2021, The Agile College, How Institutions Successfully Navigate Demographic Changes. And first off, thank you very much for writing it. You know, you, you didn't necessarily have to do a follow-up to the previous book, but uh, it was well-timed again. And um, what's the um, response been so far? And I know it's only what, been a few months since it came out. It's been positive. I think, you know, my, my motivation here was to provide a constructive response to the challenge that we face. So in the, if, if the first book was to identify that there's a challenge, you know, there have been a lot of institutions, especially in the Northeast Quadrant, where they've been grappling with this, doing interesting things so that demographics isn't destiny. It obviously mm-hmm. is something we have to grapple with, but we can grapple positively and constructively and hopefully come out the other side stronger versions of ourselves in most cases. And so as I'm talking about the first book and seeing these constructive proactive activities, it just seemed to me like there are no doubt other campuses that recognize the challenge and would like to have their conversation jump-started by some examples elsewhere. Not that obviously you can just take somebody else's initiative off mm-hmm, the shelf mm-hmm. and plug it in. Your institution context is so important, but it might start a conversation. You might say, well, we could do something like that. We tweak it this way or that way. Here's something else that would never work here. Or maybe just the conversation about what other institutions are doing sparks a novel idea that nobody else is trying but would fit your institutional context well. And so, you know, the intent was to jumpstart those conversations on campuses that wanted to do so. I also updated the forecasts um, using more recent data sources. But the the primary goal was to provide this next page or chapter, if you will, of, Mm -hmm. okay, if, if we recognize that we do need to adapt to the changing environment, what are the options that we have? When you updated the forecast, was there much of a change? Uh, qualitatively, I would say no. There were some changes. So, for instance, in the original forecasts, uh, the projections looked to create a slightly bigger drop through 2029. But because the fertility um, decline has continued, in essence, we get very similar stories. It just takes a little bit more time. Mm-hmm. We still see, of course, that the Northeast and the Midwest are tough regions because that's where fertility has been low. And the West and the South do a little bit better, both because of immigration, migration, and then fertility as well. So we get very, very similar stories with some, you know, nuanced adaptation. I did also take the the opportunity then to extend the forecast and, for instance, Mm -hmm. look at whether publics and privates seem to be in the same, sort of riding the same tide, or do they have different patterns? And the short story there was no. Mm -hmm. Um, I did some things by breaking down the projections, and there were some modest nuances there when you look at students who are persistent, that is, they attend an institution and either stay connected with that institution or at least with higher ed uh, versus students who are transfer students. Um, because I know some institutions primarily serve, say, the transfer market or not the transfer market. Mm-hmm. Um, so the book gives some, some new information that way as well. And the book really gets into some key areas and provides a bunch of strategies in those areas. And I'm just going to name a few here. There's a chapter on, on recruitment and financial aid policy, uh, you look at retention and growth strategies, program reform, uh, reorganization, and collaboration as well. And I guess I was wondering from your perspective if you thought these strategies uh, were kind of equally weighted in terms of having long-term positive impacts, or if kind of depending on the institution, maybe you know the 
what you found they're focused in one or two of these key areas or and what your recommendation is for an institution that's digesting all of this opportunity yeah that's a difficult question to answer because i think the answer is it depends and it depends mm-hmm. on the institutional context so i heard from institutions that seem to be making all of these strategies work and of course one of the strategies is retrenchment and another one is growth well that kind of indicates that it can't be that both strategies are necessarily great for every institution, but for some institutions, each strategy has its place. I'm a little bit skeptical. The first one you mentioned is recruitment, um, and it's the first chapter in, in this section mm-hmm. because I think it's the first place that most institutions go. Mm-hmm. We've got a shrinking pool. we just got to up our game in recruitment. And I think we do have to up our game in recruitment, but my concern is that we can't likely all find our way through this mess by just recruiting harder because most of us are recruiting students who are either going to our institution or another institution and obviously they they won't go to both Um, the only way that we're going to navigate this collectively is insofar as we do increase the college attendance rate Mm -hmm. but with our attendance rates prior to the pandemic at least being so high we have to be realistic and i think that means thinking that, yes, we might be able to um, take a little of the sting out of the equation by expanding matriculation rates, but we would have to expand them unrealistically in order to overcome the decrease in the pool size. And that Mm -hmm. pushes us back Mm -hmm. toward thinking of of some of the the other strategies that might require us actually to adapt who we are and and how we do our day-to-day practices. Well, I mean, you talk a lot about improving retention, which seems when you're looking at a supply and demand side, that increased retention and graduation rates is a key thing for institutions because there's such a variance among institutions in that space from, you know, on the very high side, 80% and, and above retention rates to where most schools, I mean, I'm thinking mostly about the privates, are in the 60s and 70s, and there's a lot of opportunity there. You know, that's always thing in terms of weighting these. Is that even weighted a little bit higher and something all schools can focus and do a better job at. Yeah, I tend to think that's right, that retention practice is one of the most positive ways forward mm-hmm. because it allows us not to contemplate some of the more painful alternatives like retrenchment, and it really is about us all better fulfilling our missions. So it's, it's a bit of a win-win-win where the institution is financially more sustainable. The student, of course, is better off if they're served better. And society doesn't gain anything by having, a say, a student loan crisis that is really fueled by the some college, no degree folks who have enough college to have debt, but not the degree. And so they don't have the earnings potential to pay it off. So in some sense are still lagging performance and retention. We could do better allows us to navigate a shrinking pool by showing up those retention rates. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, of course, you still have a little bit of the shifting the chairs on the deck in the sense that some institutions are picking up students who transfer out of another institution. So if I do better at retaining my students, now you have a problem because your transfer pool just got got affected. But the statistics in the U.S. as a whole, regardless of, of subsector, are weak enough on retention and persistence that we really could collectively offset much of the demographic contraction by aggressive but reasonable improvements in retention. Mm-hmm. We did a study recently looking at mostly iPads data, and it looked at growth areas, and uh, male student enrollment came up as one of the areas to be explored because it, in comparison to um, the growth in female students, it was really low, and so it was identified yep. as a growth spot. What are your demographics telling you about male students going to college? 
so my work doesn't add a ton to that picture. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm basically looking backward at college attendance patterns of high school seniors in approximately 2013 and saying, hey, what if those patterns persist? Um, and so because the number of babies that are boys and girls born each year in each birth cohort doesn't vary dramatically from cohort to cohort, you know, my projections add nothing to that. But it's absolutely true that one area where we could improve both matriculation and persistence is in particular with, with males. Mm-hmm. So that's an area where if, if we can figure out how to be attractive to more male students, it would be helpful right now. Another thing that you get into in the book, which I thought was really good, and it's about transfer students, which, again, we identified similarly as an opportunity for growth. I know a lot of institutions have worked on partnerships with community colleges and others doing two-year degrees. But, again, it also seems like in another area that we haven't really fully figured out yet. And, you know, when you were doing your research, are you finding uh, more institutions thinking about that and, and doing a better job? You know, what's your advice kind of moving forward in that, that space of partnering up? Yeah, I saw some great examples of institutions that are collaborating to try to solve this problem. So two-year schools working with nearby four-year colleges so that the application to the four-year college that might have in the past simply been a rejection and left the student to figure out, well, what do I have to do if I want to achieve my goals, Mm -hmm. turns into a coordinated education plan that we're not telling you no, we're telling you not right now. And so if you will instead enroll at at this two-year college that's close by and take these courses, then you know, you'll be able to more seamlessly transfer. And I think part of the issue here is information that students who are in that case of being rejected by the four-year institution are not likely to be the students that are quickest at figuring out, okay, so what's my strategy for mm-hmm. getting where mm-hmm. I want to go? So this sort of coordinated admissions policy between the two institutions helps with that. And the second issue that I see institutions working on is the social belonging aspect. Mm -hmm. That if the student's goal ultimately is the four-year degree, it can be an impediment if they spend their first two years at the two-year college, but they don't really have an identification sense of belonging with the four-year school. And so I've seen schools, for instance, uh, like St. Cloud State in Minnesota, where I Mm -hmm. live, uh, working with the nearby community college. But the students are living in the four-year institution dorm. They have a an ID card uh, related to the four-year college. And the the point here is to make that transition, not just bureaucratically, but also emotionally for the student as seamless as possible um, so that they they earn the four-year degree in the end. And I think it's really promising because we know from surveys that students who start their two-year degree are very often seeking a four-year diploma in the end. Something like 80% of students say that that is their ultimate goal. And yet we only have about 30% of the students make that transfer and only about one in eight will actually earn the four-year degree. So there's an enormous gap in the pipeline there. Um, At other institutions, Drake in Iowa, for instance, just Mm -hmm. opened an associate's degree program within what had been a four-year institution with the idea, you know, here is sort of bring the whole thing in-house. And of course, their goal is to create this symbiotic relationship between the two-year and the four-year program. Um, and, I, and I think that's a, a reasonable alternative. It kind of depends on your context. Do you have a good partner mm-hmm. in the in the four-year institution or in the two-year institution, depending on which side of this you're on? Or is it something where you're you're trying to develop something in-house because you don't have that nearby partner that's, that's quite as aligned? That concludes part one of my two-part conversation with Nathan Graw. In the next episode, we'll look at the impact of COVID and how, in some respects, it's helped institutions realize their own agility. Thanks for joining us. 
Thanks for being here for Connect, Collaborate, Champion, a podcast of the New American Colleges and Universities. This podcast is made possible thanks to our partner, public radio station 91.3 WYSO in Yale Springs, Ohio. Thank you, YSO. The New American Colleges and Universities connects our campuses to collaborate in the delivery of innovative ideas and to champion the belief that a comprehensive, liberal, professional, and civic education is essential to the future of our world. To learn more about our amazing campuses, visit nacu.edu, N-A-C-U dot E-D-U. See you soon.